No, you know what? There. All right. Now it's all right. Um, so he kept he kept things going. Yeah, he, he always kept a lot of odd jobs. Um, and my father, he always brought his check home to my mother, just signed. And it was always turned over to her until the late years they married. But um, the until whole time. Until late years? Of their marriage. And, uh, but, but before then, the check, he always brought the check home. He always kept our jobs. He, it was a place called Smith Cook Construction Company. And it was 4,900, what is Martin Luther King now. And it was an office there. And he would go there once or twice a week, I think, to clean up the office. And sometimes I would beg to follow him because, you know, it was always, no, you're a girl, you can't go, you know. Uh, I was always pushed to the back because I was a girl. And sometimes he would let me go and we would have to empty the uh, the cuspa doors. And that, that was usually my job to empty that. And we'd dust the office and, and sweep the floor and he would mop the floor every so often. And he would go out to the cooks that used to live on, on um, ooh, what was it? Out there off of out Union on those private streets over in there. And he would cut their grass and, you know, do the heavy work mm -hmm. around the house. And uh, my brothers would go with him. We, we always had to work. We always had to work. And uh, whatever you made, you had to contribute so much to the house, no matter what it was. If it was 50 cents, you had to give half of it to the house. And so a lot of that money my father kept, that was his money. Even some of that he would turn over to to my mother. My mother worked wonders with money, with a little money. <laughs> she worked. She worked. stayed home though. Yes. Mm -hmm. But she she was a good manager. Yeah, yeah. She. Uh, it was just amazing the way she was able to run a household on so little. My husband comes from a family of of ten, and he always said that I I was born rich when we talk about our experiences. Because I tell him, I used to hate to eat the drumstick. And during the week, I always had to eat the drumstick. He said, yeah, chicken during the week. <laughs> mm -hmm. I said, yes, because my father was, it was certain things that he wanted. He, he, he wasn't a, a demanding person, but he never wanted his wife to work. He wanted her home. And there were certain things he had to have meat with every meal, and he had a dessert with every meal. And so things like rice puddings and bread puddings and cobblers were wheat time sweets. And on Sundays we had the cake with the frosting and the fancy pies and things like that. But during the week we always had some kind of dessert, and we always had meat because my father just had to have that. That was that was it. And uh, but he he worked hard to give my mother the money to to provide that. And uh, as I said, she she worked wanting to move into a house with making thirty five dollars a week and four children all in school. Well, had he bought the house? Was he buying well, it? I this mean? is how we got the house. Um, the Knights of Columbus they have a raffle every year, and. At that time, I think it was 1950 when he won the raffle, and he won a Ford. And they took the cash instead of the car, and the cash was like about $3,500. So we were rich. <laughs> we had $3,500. Well, 
So from the time they got that, it was, we're going to buy a house. We're going to have our own house at last. So that's how we were able to buy the house. To use that as part mm -hmm. of it as a down payment. Mm -hmm. And then he paid for it, like mm -hmm. everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Pitch pennies to pay for it and everything. So did so did he did he um, where did he bank? Do you know? Yeah, it was uh, it Jefferson Bank was one, and that's where they banked in the beginning, and that's where they had the money, because I never will forget one day my mother had gone to put in for a loan of some kind, and they turned her down, and she asked for money, and they said you have to give us notice. She said you didn't give me a notice. I want my money now. So something might happen. She said, you let me worry about that. If I can't have your money, you can't have mine. And from there, they went to Bank of St. Louis at that time, and they stayed with that. <laughs> Sounds like um, you had some good examples oh, for yeah. standing up yeah. for oh, yourself. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, do you feel that your parents provided what you needed for everyday life. Oh yeah. Yeah, they really did. You know, when I when I look at things on, on these talk shows and and just read the newspaper, I said, Thank God for my parents. Uh do you have family memories and stories and experiences that maybe your parents or your grandparents might have handed down to you about when they were young or or yeah. just from the yeah. family. Yeah, there, there, a lot of them are pretty wild stories. Of, of um, my mother saying when a mother and father would go into town and they would get a chicken and and uh, kill it and, and cook it up before they come back. <laughs> or go up under the bed and steal some of the peaches that they had canned and make a peach pie <laughs> and things like that. Um, Riding on the horses, um, my mother said that my father had the um, a surrey with a fringe on top, and that it was beautiful, and it was the talk of uh, the when they stayed in the country. And she said they didn't, you know, they didn't have shoes, <laughs> but her father had that. And um, they, my mother said at one time that her parents grew everything they needed on the farm except for coffee and sugar. Mm. And my grandfather used to uh, make chairs, he used to repair shoes. My grandmother sold and so they were able to trade like that to get the coffee and the sugar that they needed. But all their meat and all the vegetables, uh, they grew. Uh, my grandfather, he had a nice piece of land there. He lost it. He had co-signed for a cousin for a loan, and um, he didn't pay the loan, and they took my grandfather's farm. And um, she said she can remember then her mother and father becoming very sad and very different after that, and they had to move into uh, to town uh, to look for jobs. And she said that uh, while moving into town, they had everything piled up on the wagon. And he ran into a ditch or something, and the wagon turned over. 
and all of her mother's china that had been passed mm -hmm. down was broke. And she said her mother just cried. And she said she had never seen her mother cry like that. And I have her mother's platter now. And um, she was saying her mother had china that's set up on little legs or something. Mm -hmm. And that it was just beautiful stuff that had been passed down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. uh, you were saying that when you were in Car Square Village and you faced, they take the the food down in the wagon yeah. to your aunts, that you all were very careful or caring or something, or protective of your grandfather. Yeah. Why? That was the way they were. It, it was nine of them. You mean Five girls and four boys, and three of the boys and not. Well, I thought town. there was a reason. They, no, they, 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 just, they just loved they him. Just they loved took him. care oh, of him. Okay. He was robbed once. They took him down to they Middle Market. They were very protective of yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. They were good to him. Yeah. I, I thought there was something no. else. And, and he played a very important part of my life. He was, he was my grandpa. <laughs> uh -huh. because, because he... He, he was tell. blind, and I used to keep my grandfather. Uh, when I, before I started school, I started school at four and a half. So when I was about three years old, my my aunt, my mother's older sister, did day work. And my mother and aunt, they were they, my other work. aunt, Worked yeah, domestic home. work. Mm -hmm. And they would go there and sit with my grandfather until my aunt got off from work. Well, sometimes they had something to do. So since I was the only one not in school, they would take me there and leave me there. And they would say, don't open the door for anybody. And they would say, the insurance man is due. And they had this little pocket thing close to the door. But I would let the insurance man in. He knew which one was his. And he would take it down and mark it in the book and sit it back up there. And we would just sit in the house and I would, when the, when the it was the, the stove, you know, you put the wood in and the coal, and sometimes it would be gone so long that the, the fire would die down. And my grandfather would be called me Lamy. And he said, Let me put some wood on the stove. Here I am three. And I would put the wood on the stove and I would take the poke iron and, and move it around. And but you could trust kids then not to not to do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. And I would just sit in between his legs, standing up a lot of times. He he had a corner that he had everything around him because he was blind that he could maneuver and know what to get. And I would just stand there. He would hold me in between his legs so I wouldn't get away. And I would just sit there and I'd fall off to sleep and sometimes he'd hold me in his arm and rock mm -hmm. me in this rocking chair. And I did that up until I went to school. And a lot of people say, you didn't do that at three years old. So yes, I did too. And my mother said, yeah, she, she had to stay there. Somebody had, you know, it was always somebody had to stay there with my father. Somebody had to take care of him. And, uh, they, they were sad, and don't leave out. My grandfather used to like to, to get castrol. He, if he got a headache, he took castrol. Uh -huh. And they would try to keep it away from him. <laughs> so whenever they would leave, and I wrote a poem about this, I write poetry. Oh, and you? he said, uh, he, he would always say, leave me, they gone. And I was again, he said, go look out the window. And I would look, and I said, I don't see him, Papa Chin. And he said, I want you to go to the store for me. And he would give me the money, and he would say, go get me some castrol, or go get him some snuff, or whatever he wanted. And he said, and this is for you. He would give me like a nickel. He said, now you can't tell. 
So I said, okay. Because you weren't supposed to be gone. Right. And he said, I'm going to watch out for you. <laughs> and he would follow me, and he was standing on the porch. And he said, is it clear? I said, yeah. well, you know, at that time you didn't have as many cars going up mm -hmm. or down the street. And I would just run across the street and pick up his stuff and get me some candy mm -hmm. and come back. And after I finished eating, I had to throw the paper in the fire. So nobody would know that I had been out. We <laughs> <laughs> all had a secret. Well, I can see that would be a very you had you had a real tie yeah. to him. I'm sure you were important to him too. Uh, what did you call him, Papa? Papa Jim. Jim, and, mm -hmm. and he called you Leamy. 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 Mm-hmm. How, how how would you spell that? I don't know, but that's what that's what that's, he called. That's what it was. Uh, you also told me that you worked. You you worked for your aunt. Yeah. When you were ten, ten to fourteen years mm -hmm. old, you mopped and waxed for a dollar mm -hmm. at your aunt's house, and that was like your allowance. Yeah. Well, I had to give part of it back to the house, uh -huh. and the rest was my allowance. So now this was when you when you were ten to fourteen you lived mm -hmm. out on St. Louis. Mm -hmm. She lived near. No, she lived out on Dayton. She still lived. There. Yeah. So. so, my mother would put me on the bus mm -hmm. on Fridays after school, and my aunt would stand at the corner. She really couldn't see that that she really wasn't able to see because I I had quite a walk when I uh, got downtown, and would walk over to her house. My mother would call and say, she's gone. And then my aunt would look out for me. Mm -hmm. And I would come, and I had to hurry before it got dark. And then I would go back and catch the bus, and she would call my mother and say I was on my way home. How were Saturdays spent? Well, Saturdays were spent getting your hair fixed, uh, doing, you know, playing some, but mostly getting ready for Sunday in church. So when you lived on St. Louis Avenue, actually the only children that you played with were the children across the street? Yeah, because there were, there were other black children, but they weren't in the block. Yeah, I'm saying because you, you had to come home after school, yeah. so you didn't have a chance to go to at Benton even to go to any of your friends' mm -mm. house. Um, My mother didn't, didn't go in for that anyway, going to somebody else's house. and You know, it, you had to play where she could see you. What impression did you get um, about how your parents and grandparents felt about people who were racially different from your family? Um, I guess I got more from, from my father with him being um, Muslim and um, um, whites and um, you know, that things were different, and that uh, white folks was doing this, and you had to be smarter than anybody else. You just had to be better um, to make it. And But even what they called make it wasn't making it, you know, compared to what making it is now. But uh, Compared to what making it is now, or yeah. compared to how white people were making it? Compared to how white people were making it, I In should say. In those days. Yeah, yeah. And, um, because making it in those days, as black people were as making as it, blacks could go. Where it was a lot different yeah. than today, yeah. making it. Yeah. And um, 
you know, there, there was, even though my father worked around a lot of whites and he talked about his religion, but he really didn't talk about his true feelings. When he got home, he would always say his feelings about white people and the things that he had experienced. And now he's saying he can't remember any of that. But at that time, you know, he did. Well, what did he say? Um, he would just say that the, the whites were bad, but they held us down and we couldn't do this and, and we, we couldn't do that. It wasn't a thing of um, a lecture on a regular basis, but what we knew about whites is, is primarily what we learned from him. Um, yeah. And, and, and it was, it was, was it casually said, like it was a dinner table talk? Just like what he did that day or sometimes it would be what it, what he did that day. I can remember once that one of the ladies wanted my mother to clean the house. One of the ladies that, that worked, worked with my father, yeah. And he went into a rage. Down there or yeah, at home? Both places. And he told them my wife only cleans my house. That my wife will never go out and clean white people's house, you know. And he's very proud of that that she was not going to go out, because that was really all that you could do then. He said that she was not going to do that. Now sometimes when I would have an aunt who was sick and she wanted to hold her days, she would ask my mother, well my father would just raise holy hell until the whole thing was over with. But she would go out and yeah. help your aunt. Mm -hmm. To hold, so she could yeah. be all sick and hold her job for. Uh -huh. And then when, when I was older and I was going to sew then, this family that lived out on the Waterman or someplace out there, I can't think of it now. They had a daughter who was in the Bell Prophet, Nancy Cook, I can still remember, because they, they had a maid there, Mamie. And I always called her Mamie Cook. <laughs> Everybody else was cook in the house, so I thought she was a cook too. And But when their daughter got married and had a baby, they asked my father if I could babysit. And my father told him no. That, I didn't have a daughter for her to raise white kids. No, when she raised kids, that would be her own. And then another thing, when I was little, my mother was the first person to have black dolls. She sent off for them someplace in New York. She saw in some magazine, and she ordered these black dolls, and she had the hardest time trying to sell them to people in Cosquare Village. And I never had a white doll. So one year at the factory where my father worked. Your mother saw this in, the, in a magazine mm -hmm. and she sent away from him mm -hmm. so that she could sell them to yeah. people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people would say, oh, my daughter wouldn't like a white doll. She's a black doll. So why? It looks like her. You know, but she had the hardest time. And I mean, she got in arguments with people. Did she sell any? Yeah, anything? she was able to sell some, but not like she wanted to. Yeah. And when I was little, the ladies at the factory gave me a little doll. It was a little doll. All it had was a white face and the rest was like cloth outfit or something. And when I got it for Christmas and I opened it up, I said, oh, Ma, she's white. My mother took her and she started getting my crayon that I had for Christmas. And she started painting her face every color, you know. And uh, so when I when I went back down to the factory to visit, I had the doll. Ooh. And they said, what happened to the doll's face? My daddy said, she can't have a white doll. He said, because a doll represents a baby. And I'm not raising a child to have a white baby or to babysit with white babies. 
So they never gave me a dollar again. They always gave me some other dollar. <laughs> uh, how did what you were hearing from your father and I, I your understood mom it. it. It it made sense to me. And I couldn't understand when a lot of people wouldn't buy the dolls. Uh, well, some used the excuse it costs more. And uh, but a lot of them just said, "But um, she want what's what's in the store, you know, and not that." And I couldn't understand why somebody would want a white doll or a black doll. You know, this is this is the way your baby is supposed to be, reflective of you. And I didn't have any problems with. That. I had problems with other people not understanding that. It was something that I grasped right away. Did the feelings that you got from your from your parents uh, that had to do with people, other people different from you, um, when you had your own, when you interacted with people, or when you got to Soldan, uh, um, how that affect your? I found it to be true. I found it to be true. Even though I, I went in um, somewhat open, I still found it to be true. Um, there were a lot of teachers and students who were against integration. And I think I must have ran into, ran into every one of those teachers. You started Soldan. In 56. 56. Mm -hmm. And so um, the ratio of must have been... It was still predominantly white. White. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, I found some teachers that were, that were really a racist. As I said, when, when I became 10, when I was 10, and had to deal with, with couple school and the teachers there making a difference in the light and the dark, that's when I became more outspoken with teachers and everybody, with authority, period. Oh, that was couples. That was not Benton. Right, that was couples. And um, so when, when I got to, to high school, it was... It was the same thing, I, I, but I was able to, to deal with them because I was... Would you call yourself medium in color, coloration? I was, I always considered myself dark. Uh -huh. And uh, I can remember my first year sold there in world history. I had this little teacher. I could see her face. I can't remember her name now. All white teachers? Yeah, yeah. I had um, one black teacher. And... Um, she, we were on World War II, and she started talking about the Holocaust. And she went on and on and on and on and on about how Jews were persecuted and everything else. And I guess I must have really been looking bored. And she said, do you have a problem with this? I said, yes. And she said, well, I said, I don't care about how Jews were persecuted. You know, I said, I've had to deal with slavery. And I said, and that was even worse. I said, we were forced to marry each other. You know, when you were sold to another family, you might run up against your brother and later on be forced to marry him or whatever. I said, we were killed. We were killed bringing, being brought over here. We were killed afterwards. And I said, I can't give you all that sympathy for Jesus. That's your problem. This is mine. And she put me out of the class. And for, she said, you can just leave. And boy, what did she say that for? I really let her have it with both barrels. And um, so I, I was sent to the principal's office, and he was telling me that I had to be sympathetic because she was Jewish. I said, but I'm black. She's not sympathetic towards me. I said, we went through the what blacks have done in, in two seconds, and now she want to dwell on this. We've been on this forever. She want to dwell on this forever. You know, I don't want to hear. 
And he was able to get her to the point of leaving me alone. And she got off the Holocaust. And we were able to move on in history. But I had to dot every I and cross every T after that. <laughs> and I think I worked, I, I worked harder in that class than I did any other, because she was out to fail me. <laughs> there was so much chance for yeah. coming yeah. together there. Yeah. Um, and I ran into a lot of others with you all. You know, and that's that's a phrase that will set black people on fire even what, today. To say you all? Mm hmm Because you all mean blacks and you're throwing everybody in together, you know. And you all are used and that's that's what a lot of whites and that's what a lot of the, the teachers say it. And and you all just, just it's just a negative term, like I say, even today. And we ran into um, a lot of that, a lot of just, just a lot of um, things making you feel inadequate in the school, and and um, they were doing you a favor by um, integrating the schools and things like that. It just really made you you feel feel bad, and and just just made me fight more and. You know, as a consequence, I've, I've become very outspoken my whole adult life on, on anything. You throw something out there and I'll challenge you. <laughs> Today is uh, May 26th, uh, and I'm uh, back interviewing Salim, Salima for the uh, second interview. Um, all right, Salima, well, your, your dad... Uh, we were talking about uh, my interviewing him and, and what he had said to Kim, your daughter. Yeah. Um, he said he had not run into a lot of racism, but I think my father might be confused a little bit about racism. Um, I did not really know what racism meant until really I was grown, even though I had grown, gone through the integration at Soul Dan and integrating in, in uh, 4900 on St. Louis Avenue. It was still when I was grown because you accept it and you didn't question that it was racism. You just, you know, when I was little and I went downtown and I saw a restaurant and people sitting down eating, I knew that I was black and couldn't go in there. But most of all, I knew that I could not afford to go in there. So that was more overpowering than the fact that I was black. That I, didn't, that I didn't have the money, mm -hmm. you know. So that's what really stuck out. And I, I knew that I was black, and that was forbidden. But I also knew that I, I didn't have the money. And you always felt that if you had the money, that would overcome anything else. You, and, you, you could separate that? I mean, you, 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 did, you thought you were being kept out because you didn't have the money? Yeah, I knew I, I not kept out. I couldn't go in yet. I knew that we did not you have the money. You couldn't go in, but it wasn't because you were black? I knew that black had something to do with yeah. it, but I knew most of all most of that even if I was white that we did not have the money to go in mm -hmm. and sit down in a restaurant with tablecloths. All that signified money to me, you know. When you went into a restaurant and there was a tablecloth mm -hmm. and a vase sitting on the table, you know, so I, I would walk and I would look and, and 
I hoped for money, not for integration. You, you hoped know. for money. Yeah, and you know, because to me, money was the key to it. And and I think with my father, then, even though his his job, um, the job that I remember working at this uh, hat and purse factory, that he was um, um, a shipping clerk, had nothing to do with racism. He thought, but that was just a job. But there were certain things you couldn't go into, and you never thought about it. And so that was that was just his job, and he didn't think that he was assigned that because of his race. Yeah. Why did he think he was assigned it? it that that was just the job. You know, you couldn't really focus on racism then. Was it a denial? Yeah, I guess I guess it was more of a denial because when you really start thinking about racism, after you get to the point where you realize that, you know, I can't do this because I'm black, it becomes very disturbing. You know, your whole life changes. You know, um, when just thinking that. Oh, I can't get that job, and not the reason why. There's, there's a difference about it, you know, and um, because, and and I think that's the way it was with my father. Um, he cleaned offices, and he never thought about being owner of that company. He just thought of himself as an office cleaner, mm -hmm. and now he has stated that. Um, he was sure that he didn't make supervisor at the post office because of his religion. My father has always been outspoken on his religion. And, but he just, when we moved on St. Louis Avenue and I couldn't go to the school on the corner, you know, it, it was never a big issue. To me, he should have been very disturbed that I have two kids. Well, I have one because my brother chose to continue to go to Patrick Henry because he was in his, his last year. And But I was only in the fifth grade. And he never said that, you know, my daughter has a right to go to the school right across the street. And um, he just didn't look at it that way. And like I said, when, when, you start, when you start thinking in terms that I didn't get this because I am black. I am a female, or you know whatever the you know the circumstances might be, then it changes everything about you. You becomes you become hardened. You become a cynic. You become everything like that. Yeah, everything just changes. So, in a sense, is it trying to take care of yourself? Yeah. Is it a protection? Or? Yes, I think so. Acceptance? Yeah. You just accept it. I know that I wanted to be a flight attendant when 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 uh, airline stewardess they call them. And I wanted to be that and to me that was the most glamorous job mm -hmm. in the world. And I'm older now, I'm a teenager. And I sent off for information and I received the information and my teacher said they don't have any blacks doing that. And I didn't become disturbed. I didn't, I didn't want to change the world. You know, I went on to something else. But as I, I got older and really understood what that was all about, that I shouldn't have to change 
to something else. Well, I'll, I'll be this. It's a very fine line. Yeah. To keep yourself on that side. And, and once, once you cross over and you realize what it's all about and that you should do something about it and that you can do something about it, in many cases, your whole life really, really changes. Um, you go from an interview of somebody saying, well, I don't have any, anything available right now and you getting up and accepting that and going someplace else and putting in an application to, uh, what do you mean you don't have anything? You, you, you become more challenging, you make people explain things and you just become more vocal and no, that's really not the reason. Put, put it in personal terms. Can you put it in personal terms of, of you and what you, uh, on your, uh, from Soul Day and you graduated in 60, and uh, you attended uh, uh, for, I guess, short periods of time, Forest Park, Flow yeah. Valley, and also yeah. your work experience is, um, is, is diversified, and uh, shall, I, shall I read it over? No, let's see. Um, and I guess my real, true rebirth came about when I started working for the Civil Rights Agency. Yeah. I was still accepting a lot of things and not questioning them. When I went to the Civil Rights Agency, I'm something like 27, 28 years old at the time. And um, Civil Rights Enforcement yes. Agency Council on Human yes. Relations. It was originally the Council on Human Relations and they changed the name and, and got a stronger ordinance as well and start really coming full circle and realizing what discrimination is all about. And yeah, it was 69 to 89. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's, that's when things really, really change for me. I, I always chose um, careers that I was not allowed to be into. When I was a little girl, I wanted to be a movie star, not just an actress, I wanted to be a star. And, uh, you know, everybody always said, well, you're, you're not fat enough to be Hattie McDaniel, and you're not light enough to be Lena Horne. And, and who's who with it? And um, from that, I, um, I wanted to be an airline hostess. I wanted to be a fashion model. And I wanted to be all the things that society had decided that I, I couldn't be. But those were always the things that I always aspired to. And, um, you know, I, I model, I model for sex. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that because okay. you... And because I, I had just resigned myself to do modeling for black organizations. There was a Black Retailers Association during the late 60s and, and early 70s that was very uh, strong and popular at the time, and I modeled for them. It was a local organization? Yes. 
and I just happened to be in Saks shopping one day. Saks Avenue when yes, it was on Maryland. Yes, when it was on Maryland. And the, um, in the Central West End. Mm -hmm. And the fashion coordinator, can't think of her name now, she saw me in the store. And she asked me if I had ever done any modeling. I said, of course, I am a model. And she said, would you like to model for Saks Fifth Avenue? Again, I said, of course, I would love to. And she said, the time has come when we should have a black model. And I would like for you to be a black model. My hair was actually about your length, like Kim's. Really short. Yes, really short. And that's how I started modeling. Well, it just so happened there was a very big show coming up at, at Scott Air Force Base for the wives. And there were quite a few black wives. Can you, can, did we ascertain what year this was? What year, what year, what year? That, that was in the very early 70s. Very early 70s. Okay. And the, some of the wives, they had insisted on seeing a black face in that fashion show. And it went over so well that they continued to use me and I model in the store and wherever they had a fashion show. I was the black model. Then when they moved out in, in Frontenac, the, the fashion coordinator who hired me was no longer there and they brought in someone else and they brought in some more models black models and I never got a chance to model out there but that's that's how I got that job after I started modeling and, and how did everybody uh, treat you and how did you feel about it and it, it, it was I was a novelty <laughs> yeah. you know everybody walked in the store all the blacks loved it because blacks were shopping at Saks like mad and at that period of time yeah and when they walked in they said, and sometimes, you know, we would just take a stance, and people thought that I was a statue. Mm -hmm. And they would come over to feel my clothes, and when I would move, people would scream, you know, white and blacks. And they said, it's so good to see you here. White, uh, white and black. White and black. You know, it's really good to see you. And they stopped in the office and would tell them, you know, I'm so happy to see that you have a black model. Did a, did a, did a black woman ever say anything to you or ask you anything, like on the side, like, like you're my buddy, but how's it? How is yes. it here? Yes. Did yes. they? What did mm -hmm. they say? They would ask me, uh, how is it working here? How is it being the only black model? How do they treat you? Mm -hmm. And everybody treated me fine. I had, I had no problems. Um, in the beginning. They wanted to select clothes. They wanted to select colors for me. I have a tendency, I can wear any color. I don't like browns, a dark brown. I blend right into a dark brown. And so I always chose not to wear dark browns. But they wanted to put me in colors because they thought that they knew, really knew colors as far as a black was concerned. And I had to tell them that that I can wear any color. Let me show you. And once I did that, then they usually just open up the room to me. I said, what do you want to pick out? And um, that was something I was very good at. Well, 
I found that things that, that I want to do, I'm very good at things that I don't want to. <laughs> and uh, I, I was a good fashion runway model. And I was very slim. And um, I wore clothes well. And I was very good at it. Now, infiltrating or being part of or being the first in something like that um, and in that neighborhood, uh, um, how did that go over in your community, your group? How, how Fine, was everybody was excited. Everybody was happy for me. Um, it went well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but now, while I was still modeling, I put in, uh, at the time, it was Sticks Baron Fuller, and they used to have trials for models mm -hmm. every spring. So here I am, a Saks Fifth Avenue model, and all these years of modeling for black organizations, I went down, and I went for the tryouts, and I filled out my application, and I went up, and I modeled, and, well, I know I'm great. <laughs> Everybody in St. Louis tell me I'm great. And, uh, they start calling off the ones that they selected. And I was not a mom. And I couldn't believe it. And I went up and I said, I know you made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and they said no. They had picked um, a couple of black girls who were very fair, very long, straight hair. And so I said, well, why didn't you pick me? They said, well, your hair is too short. I said, what do you mean too short? And they said, well, you can't wear hats. And I said, I can wear a hat better than anybody in the world. And I, I can wear a hat. <laughs> there are certain things that I know and certain things that I question. I said, I can wear a hat. I used to wear hats to work. I was a clerk typist, you know, and I wore hats to work. I was famous for my hats. And uh, so I told them, you're not going to get away with this, and you haven't seen the last of me. In those words? Yes. And I filed a charge of discrimination. This fellow named Jake MacArthur, who was here and wrote for the Post-Dispatch. And I knew Jake. And uh, so I met with Jake, and Jake wrote an article and had, an, like this man that writes an article now, you know, the little everyday features mm -hmm. on whatever's going on. And Jake wrote an article, and I filed um, charges with the EEOC, the Missouri Commission, and the Civil Rights Enforcement Agency. And we settled. Uh, but it, it was just, I couldn't believe. <laughs> settled. They paid you something? Yes, yes, to, uh, to stop the complaint. <sighs> uh. And uh, so that was your modeling career. Yeah. So you you made a an impact. Uh, all right. Do you want to say anything more about the civil rights uh, agency? But or that's where you began to really evolve. Um, now I start working there. I was the first female, and black female, investigator. And now that was fun what because at, at that time we investigated discrimination complaints in employment and housing and public accommodations. 
Yeah, it was a very interesting time because yeah. things were being made to open up. This right. was after the 60s. This is in 69, yeah. Mm -hmm. And things were really hot then. And people would come in, they follow a charge, and I would take the charge. And at that time, we had a routine letter we would send out saying that we will be out to investigate on such and such a date at such and such a time. If this is not convenient, please call me. And if not, we would just automatically go out. I always had my name, well at that time it was Reynolds. I always had Salima Reynolds. They didn't know what the hell Salima was, male or female or, or what. And uh, now Reynolds was your maiden name? No, that was, that was my first husband. First yeah. husband, right. And whenever I would go out, everybody's expecting a man, and certainly somebody white. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I was I was still modeling at the time, so I'm dressed fan oh, I used to everybody said, You must be from New York, you can't be from St. Louis dressing like And I would go out and Immediately, the secretary would say, you're who? Salima Reynolds from the Civil Rights Enforcement Agency. I have a 10 o'clock appointment with Mr. So-and-so. And the president of the company, whomever, would come out and, well, good morning, uh, Miss or Mrs. Mrs. Reynolds. And, you know, for the first half hour, everybody is stuttering and they don't know how to react or anything else. And a lot of them would, uh, and, and I, I was considered very attractive. I considered myself very attractive and I used it. <laughs> I used it. I wore the shortest minis in St. Louis and everything. <laughs> so then I was taken as somebody who looked good and didn't know anything. And I was able to get over. I got over. I settled more cases than anybody. <laughs> And, um, you know, everybody wanted to take me to lunch, and I would go to lunch, and I would just have a good time. And I would come back and, and find a guest, though. <laughs> and file a guest, though. Yeah, and they would say, what's going on? You know, we wined and dined, and here she is saying we're guilty of discrimination. So, you know, we always had a lot of fun with that at the agency. And a lot of times they would say, send Salima out. <laughs> Salima, wear your shortest many tomorrow. <laughs> Upset everybody. <laughs> Um, so you stayed there 20 years. Yes. And um, how, did, how did you see or what was the biggest change in St. Louis in those 20 years? What mattered the most? Uh, there was no change. There was, there was no change whatsoever. They played the game a little differently. And it became... The power structure. Yes. In the beginning, it was, um, oh no, we didn't discriminate because... Yes, and in the beginning, when you, when someone filed a charge of discrimination, they would automatically say, no, we didn't discriminate because of race, so they were not the best qualified. And in many cases, that was that was true. Um, where someone, even if, if a black had the education, they didn't have education and experience because they had never been allowed in the door. And if they had the experience, they didn't have the ed education. Mm 
And the laws worked in their favor at that time. And so then as, as blacks began to get education as well as experience, and they became the most qualified, then the law also changed to say, you don't have to be the most qualified. You just have to be qualified for the job. So that way an employer could say, even though you are the best qualified, I still think that this person might do a better job. So my number of cases never decreased the whole 20 years I was there. People continued to be discriminated against. They continued to file charges. And um, everything stayed the same. Nothing changed. Nothing has really changed in the city. Um, the way things are said, the way things are done has changed. But as far as the city being polarized, it's still the same. Uh, okay. Um, I'm sold. You took, you were an extension? Yes. I worked there at the, um, as part of the extension program. What do I have down here? Extension Center? Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's a program that they that they have for the 4-H club is part of it. Mm -hmm. And you go around to different areas that's that's interested in, let's say, sewing, having a sewing class. 4-H? Yeah. I thought that was farm. Yes. And and through the Extension Center, it was all rural, oh, rural. at one time. Okay. Yeah. And it moved into the city. Oh. So if, if um, a women's group or any, anybody wanted a, a certain thing taught, they could call there, and more than likely they had someone who could come out and hold the class. Okay. Well, when I went there for an interview, they wanted to know what I had been doing, and at, at that time I had um, written proposals, and I worked as a consultant teaching grooming and modeling for different whatever, wherever I could sell it. I had classes in public schools, um, Catholic schools, uh, women's clubs, wherever I could get an audience. And so I told them what I did and how I worked with kids, teenagers, and teaching them grooming. And they liked the idea, so they bought the program. They asked me to come in to teach the program, and that was good because I was the only one who knew the program, so I set it up. <laughs> And I did that for about a year with them. Uh, in the 60s, for about six and a half years, I guess, right before you went to the Council on Human Relations or Civil Rights Enforcement Agency, you worked at Homer Phillips. Yes. And um, as, a, as a ward secretary. Yes, and, and a then a medical, medical transcriber. transcriber. Um, and I think I told you on the phone how Dr. Uh, venerable, so that that was such an important uh, thing. Um, tell me about Homer Phillips. What was it like, um, and how was it? And, and um, Homer Phillips was. How how could you describe it? It was it was a place that there was a lot of pride 
And I started working there. I started working in 63. So, you know, there was still a lot of facilities not integrated. And doctors still, all your black doctors up until the late 60s, they had a choice of mainly two hospitals once they finished med school. And um, that was Maharia in, in Washington, D.C. And St. Louis, Homer Phillips was, was well known. But, oh, I thought you meant St. Louis. No, okay. all over. Okay. Your, your doctors, your black doctors, a lot of them came through St. Louis. All your older doctors came through St. Louis for their training mm -hmm. because there were no other facilities for them. And so there was, you know, and they had their own nursing school mm -hmm. because blacks couldn't get into the other nursing schools. There was so there was a lot of lot of pride. Um, it was all black. You had black administrators, uh, the head of the nursing department, everything. And it was it was a good hospital. It was a good hospital. In the beginning, they had some uh, white doctors that would come over from Washington. You, I don't yeah. know if they still yeah. came over. And, and were head of certain departments. I don't know how. Well, your visiting physicians, uh -huh. yeah, and and sometimes you, they would have the white students come through, but a lot of the visiting physicians who were like teaching mm -hmm. the residents and interns, yeah, you had some of those who were white. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to tell you a story. <laughs> Please do. And uh, this was before my time at Homer Phillips, but when black doctors could not operate at the other hospitals, and Barnes in particular. And where? At Barnes. At Barnes. Uh -huh. And uh, there was a doc, well, the doctors at Homer Phillips were always good at guns, chop wounds, and, and a lot of complicated surgery like that, because we have a lot of gunshot and stab wounds. And so whenever a white was shot or stabbed and taken to a white hospital, they would have to call in a doctor from Homer Phillips. And the patient never knew this. And the doctor would come in and operate and leave. And the white doctors got the credit for it. <laughs> and the patient never knew that they were operated on by a black doctor, but this was done a lot, I was told. Who told you that? Some of the older nurses and doctors. Um, was it Was it past its peak when you were there? No, it was still at its peak. It was at its peak. Mm -hmm. You, you th I think you said on the phone that you um, you were there when they, the first time they yeah, tried to close Yeah, the first time they tried to close. Um, it just so happened that in the city directory where everybody's listed, if, if you live in a city, your name and address and where you work. The new city directory came out, and some of the clerks had gotten in and just decided to look up their name. And I just happened to pass by this office at the time, and this girl said, I work at city number one. Why they have me down for city number one? And I heard her, and I just walked into the office. So what are you talking about? She said, they had me down for working at city number one, and I don't work there. And this other girl said, well, look me up. She said, I'm in city number one. I said, look, ma'am, I'm at Coke Hospital. Where's Coke Hospital? 
And we start looking up other people. And we say, hey, you know, they got you down for such and such a place. And we all gathered around and we're going through the book and everybody's shouting and the supervisor came in. And he said, what's going on? What's all this noise? Get out of here. Get back to your work. We said, you better look yourself up because you might not be here. And he looked it up and he was assigned someplace. And so we said, well, hey, maybe they can ready to do something. So then they start calling in all the bosses saying, hey, we don't have a job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's how they found out that they were going to try to close Home Phillips then, and this was in the 60s. They had already? Had assigned everybody. And put it in the phone book? Yes. And so they start calling the black politicians from that event and start having meetings and was able to turn it around. It opened, I don't know why I'm doing this because I can't remember, it, it opened in like 39 or something yes. like that, and mm -hmm. it closed in 70. I don't remember exactly when it closed. But things had started changing after I left because of integration, and doctors were able to take their internship and residence at, at all the different hospitals. Mm -hmm. And so homophiles was no longer attractive to them. That started while I was there because they even started gathering up. They would they would bring um, med students to St. Louis and I know I was on one of the committees to find pretty girls to bring to a party <laughs> so we could get the doctors to come to St. Louis and um, you know they, they did everything to try to keep them here and they would give affairs to raise money so they could pay them some extra money on the side besides what the city was paying. And uh, so the doctors no longer came because they were able to go every place and get their residence. So you were around the Ville at that time, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, what was happening in the Ville that you could see at that time? Well, in, in the Ville, people who, the Ville was considered um, a hotsy-totsy place. A lot of your so-called professionals uh, live there. Well, as everything else opened up, housing opened up, and people began to move out and move to the suburbs. And uh, so that took on a great change, too. Integration, my father always said, integration is not the best thing in the world for black people. Um, Prior to integration, blacks had their own hotels and restaurants and, and everything else. With integration, um, all those things just fell to the wayside. Let, let's talk about integration for a minute. Um, does, do you feel that um, you can integrate uh, when you did, um, you could do it and do it as you wanted to do, or did you feel that it was, you had to um, dress like them, <laughs> or be like other people? Could you be yourself and integrate? Yes. Yes. Um, 
you you are not the best subject to ask because you we all you, did you knew you felt comfortable in your clothes you felt comfortable um, but see at that at that particular time blacks were different uh, with integration we changed blacks were always well dressed before integration in the black schools. Excuse me, I don't want you to misunderstand what I said. Yeah, I know what you're saying. You're talking about change your clothes. Change, change, yes, in, integration. In other words, my question about being like someone else did not mean that you weren't well-dressed before. Yeah. But we often, when we move into another circle, question our own um, assurance. I know that I'm doing this right, but you know, if I get over there, is that really going to be right over there? When when you know you know in your heart that you. But we didn't. We right. didn't. So I'm just. Yeah. yeah I want you. No, to none of the kids did. When when we when we went to Soldan, everybody remained the same. There there were a few who stood out, who wanted to totally integrate, and by that I mean not just go to school but take on the whole persona of white. There were a few and that we laughed at. And what did they have to do to do that? They, they changed their, their way of speech. They changed their way of dance. They changed everything. And they wanted to hang out with the white kids. Mm -hmm. But now, as, as a whole, the, the blacks continued to do everything just the same. I guess my question could be better put, uh, what did you have to give up? Let's see, the only thing we really had to give up that the kids complained about was the food. <laughs> because I can remember at Soldan talking to some of the kids who went to Sumner and Fashan. They said, oh, you all eat this. I never had pigs in the blanket until I went to Soldan. A um, whole lot of different foods I never had. At, at uh, Fashan and, and Sumner, they had buffalo fish on Friday. And at the white schools, they had the fish fillet. They had greens. They had string beans. They had all the so-called soul food. And we didn't have that. We had sloppy joes. And everybody, what's a sloppy joe? <laughs> we, we never had those things until we went You're to Sumner. You're saying they had soul food? Yeah, at, so, at Sumner. At Sumner, and, oh. and And we didn't. And uh, so that was the difference. I never had a brownie until I went to high school. My mother, they made tea cakes. They called tea cakes. And we didn't have brownies. And <laughs> well, did that have a connotation to that? It was white. It was something that we weren't used to. We got used to it. Oh. Uh, we got used to it. Uh -huh. But uh, you didn't, uh, I'm talking about a frame of reference of who you were. No, that that didn't. I don't. I don't think that that changed any. Um, the all the blacks still. We still hung out together. Um, we went to the same school, but everything else was separate. So, what did integration mean to you? What did that? What did? Uh, what impact did that have on you or your family? It meant that we could go to a school that was close to us. That's really what it meant to me. 
Um, as a matter of fact, I I went to Soldan. I really was not in a district for Soldan. I was in a district for Sumner, but I didn't want to go to Sumner. Sumner had Sumner was a school that if you were dark, you could not. The dark girls were on the back line of the dance group. They didn't get starring roles in the 